This is Fire Rescue One Side Alpha Podcast, putting fire service leaders in front of hot topics facing firefighters today. Now here's the executive editor of FireRescueOne.com and FireChief.com, Chief Mark Bashore. On this edition of the Side Alpha Podcast, we're following up on the June 2021 Surfside Florida building collapse. I'll be talking with one of the foremost experts in the urban search and rescue and collapse world, Chief Dave Downey, former chief of the Miami-Dade Fire Rescue Department. We're not going to rehash what we know. Uh, We're going to be talking about what's been learned since Surfside, about uh, six months out at the time of this recording. Chief Downey recently wrote a detailed article uh, for Fire Rescue One about the response and the lessons learned. Uh, For our listeners, a, a link to that article will be in the show notes. Um, As a side note, in his 40 years of experience in the fire service, this is Chief Downey's first podcast. So, Chief Downey, welcome to the Side Alpha Podcast. Well, thanks, Chief. Thanks for having me, and uh, I appreciate you letting everybody know that. That way, uh, (laughs) I have some outs if I make any mistakes. (laughs) Yeah, no pressure. It's it's all good. I appreciate (laughs) it. and Dave, I, I want to thank you for your continued stewardship and, and leadership in the fire service. I know you retired a couple of years ago. You know, I'm, I'm in the same boat, not a couple of years ago, but um, for your continued stewardship and leadership in the fire service in general and in the urban search and rescue world specifically. I also want to give kudos to the public information officers who uh, collaborated during the Surfside event. Some may not really have followed it, uh, you know, how that all unfolded. But we had some early audio and video really pretty quickly released to help tell the story so it didn't tell itself. Um, You know, and that story told what those uh, initial first responders were confronted with. So I thank you and I I thank those folks. For the purposes of today, I'd like to, to break the conversation into three specific areas. And, of course, we could go um, in some other directions if the if the discussion takes us there. But number one, uh, what we've learned about the, the structure of the property uh, and what we've learned about religion since June 24th. So don't tune us out. Yes, we're going to have a little bit of a discussion about religion, folks. Uh, number two is uh, how did mutual aid pre-planning uh, play into the incident? And then number three, uh, how have relationships evolved and uh, what have we learned or adjusted with respect to the urban search and rescue or tech rescue programs as a result of Surfside. So with respect to the question, the the first question I laid out, what have we learned about the structure of property uh, and religion? Let's actually cover religion first. It's a little bit uh, out of cue, but uh, I think our our listeners will appreciate this. This was a pretty tightly knit uh, Jewish community and, you know, I visited the site with you. I appreciate the opportunity to come down. And I saw firsthand how uh, some of that impacted the not only the responders, but the effort. Can you talk about how that religious belief system impacted the, uh, the technical rescue effort on this incident? Sure, sure. Well, you know, in my... Uh, years of of disaster response, the one thing uh, that resonates over and over again is nothing's ever the same. And there's always 
different situations that pose themselves in these responses. And a lot of times it deals with the rules of engagement, how you're going to actually perform the search, how you're actually going to manage the survivors, how you're going to manage the victims. And it was no different here. Uh, as you said, uh, Surfside is a very uh, small community uh, in, in Miami-Dade County and a very uh, tightly knit Orthodox, has a very high Orthodox Jewish uh, population. One of the things that happened very early on was concerns about how we were going to manage the, the search and rescue operations and specifically the recovery of any victims. Uh, like anybody, when you're removing survivors, your goal is to manage them medically, get them to a medical facility and take care of them. But specific to those that uh, perish in the collapse, how were we going to manage those? And, and so early into the incident, the, the, the local authorities, the Miami-Dade Fire Department, Miami-Dade Police, you know, met very early in the first day with the, with the community. Uh, where they expressed their concerns that we adhere to some of the, the religious uh, beliefs. One being that we do everything that we can to remove not only the body or the victim, but everything around that victim. If there was blood or body fluid within a, uh, a mattress or a carpet, that all of that has to be excavated and moved out with the, with the, uh, with the body. Uh, so we, we, uh, we quickly did that, uh, established those rules of engagement for all of our search and rescue personnel. Obviously, first there was the, the, the police aspect of identify, identification of location and things like that. And then we moved into the, the proper removal. We also had clergy from all faiths there that would perform uh, rites as we removed the, 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 the victim. So... Uh, it was new to a lot of the rescuers. Uh, I'm, I was somewhat familiar with the requirements of the Jewish faith, but not to the degree that we performed here. Uh, but but uh, it, it, it proved to be very successful, and obviously we're we're trying to do what's right for the community and for the for the loved ones that, that perished. Yeah, I, you know I uh, appreciate you saying that. I I too have heard of you know some of those belief systems and. Um, how they deal with, um, frankly, how they deal with the bodies. But I, I don't believe in my 40 years that I have ever seen an incident that went to this detail to manage that belief system. Um, does that sit with you as well, or have you seen something like this uh, similar before? I've, I've never, I've never had this before yeah. in any, any type of collapse rescue operation. Yeah. Well. I mean, it's definitely an interesting dynamic that uh, for years, I'm sure, will be um, referred to, watched, or monitored for, for how folks deal with other incidents. So I appreciate uh, kind of sharing with our folks what we learned, frankly, what we learned about religion that day, which is what I said there in the beginning. So the, you know, the religious aspect was one piece uh, there, Dave, but uh, I, I know from having visited and, uh, you know, I had a quote from uh, the Israeli colonel uh, that was there. There's a, a team from Israel that actually came, a, a search and rescue team. Uh, can you talk about how that, which, which was not part of the USAR uh, package that uh, you know we were dealing with in the United States, how did that work into this whole scenario and, and how did that relationship uh, evolve 
and and did they, that help with this religious uh, discussion? Sure. The the uh, and and to this day, I I don't know the process of how these rescuers were requested. Um, I, I suspect it was kind of born from the local community, uh, but uh, Israel has a very uh, strong urban search and rescue system, uh, and they sent representatives from the uh, Israeli Defense Force uh, that, that are part of their urban search and rescue team. Uh, initially, I think it was about 12 uh, responders came. Uh, they arrived a couple days into the incident. Uh, because of the, the nature of the, the population and what we were dealing with, uh, they were a tremendous asset to just kind of help us bridge uh, the rescuers that they know nothing about with the rescuers, you know, that are faith from their faith, you know, from Israel. Um, and that helped a lot with the community. That helped a lot with the families and the loved ones. From the rescuer side, uh, the Israeli rescuers, uh, brought a lot of experience. Uh, they didn't come with any tools. They came with knowledge. They came with experience. Um, they were there around the clock. We pretty much divided them up into both work cycles. Um, the interesting thing that they brought that I've never experienced before, uh, again, these firsts for me today, uh, but I had never experienced before, was we do accountability. You know, we try to determine who was in a building, who was in an area, you know, who are we looking for? Who are we not looking for? They took it to the next level. Uh, what they did was, in my opinion, you know, fascinating. Um, part of their team that showed up were three investigators that sat just with the families. And they got, they, they interviewed the families over and over again to get every last detail about their loved ones. And they utilized support back in Israel. They referred to it uh, to us as the back room, but they would send information back to Israel. And this was a back and forth uh, communication. But they were able to bring out to the rescue site uh, when we would start delayering the structure, we would find a red carpet. And we would, uh, we would make the assumption that we're probably at the 10th floor of delayering. And they, in fact, would say, nope, here's a picture of that carpet. This is who lived in that apartment. This is the ninth floor. This is apartment so-and-so. I'm To the level of detail, they had where we would find a victim, and they said he should be wearing a ring. This is a ring he received during his childhood. These are the inscriptions on the ring. Uh, it was fascinating to me the level of detail that they had for every one of those victims that they received through the interviews of the of the loved ones to their habits where where they would sleep how they would sleep in the bed what you know what side of the bed they would sleep on uh, it was it was amazing to me and and they were true professionals they worked very closely with us and they helped provide a sense of comfort to the community that everything was being done. You know, I'm sure you've, you've experienced as I have in every type of emergency, we didn't get there fast enough. We're not doing enough. You know, the sure. perspective sometimes from the outsiders is that we don't know what we're doing. And, and, and so they were very helpful in say, you know, letting the community know we're on the right track. We're doing the right thing and we're doing everything that we could. 
So uh, it, it proved incredibly beneficial to have them there on this incident. Mm. Yeah, that's um, pretty incredible to hear that, the, the process with the family and victim identif uh, identification. Uh, I also had not heard that piece. So that's uh, that's very interesting that they were able to go into that detail for you. So um, the second half of that question that I started with, where I kind of backed up the question, uh, um, was about what we know about the building. And, you know, I know from my time there, uh, y'all had uh, brought in, or, you know, the incident had brought in uh, NIST, the National Institutes for Standards Technology, uh, and other federal agencies that uh, were going to uh, coordinate the investigation into the the what happened and the whys. Do we have any further information on that, or can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, right, right now there's there's no new information that I've I've been privy to. Uh, there's obviously the legal side that's being done and the investigation side from the police sure. department yeah. and from NIST. They're the lead agency in uh, in doing the investigation. They were there from day one, uh, and Florida one and Florida two USAR worked for the 30 days until the last victim was recovered with them, identifying parts of the building that they wanted to, you know, do further investigation on. So, I think like you, I am, and many listening to this podcast are very interested in why this building collapsed because sure. uh, this isn't unique to South Florida. This is anywhere USA, and we need to get a better understanding of why this collapsed. So I'll be interested when they come with their final report. Yeah, and, you know, we're going to um, include in our show notes also some pictures uh, that uh, I took when I was down there, and one of them shows the uh, NIST marking system. So for those that might not understand what they did, I mean, they literally – took portions of the building uh, back with them uh, to their laboratories and they were analyzing those portions of the building. And I don't mean like picking up a bag full of uh, dust. Uh, they brought in cranes and picked up sections of concrete um, that they're taking, back, yes. they're taking back to analyze. So yeah, it's a pretty amazing process they're going through for that. Um, yes, and they, and they, yeah, and they had spotters on the, the surrounding buildings and as the building was delayered they would radio down up oh, save that piece put that piece over here so yeah. they knew what they were looking for pretty pretty amazing stuff and um to you know to have it be um involved in that immediately is pretty priceless and while um, active recovery, uh, a rescue, and then recovery that's still going on is something I don't think we're used to, that involvement. So that's uh, uh, very interesting to watch. Okay, so uh, yeah, I think the federal involvement there um, is something that um, really interested to, to see that process unfold with NIST and to see uh, what they come up with. As like you said, a lot of folks are Really, really interested because a lot of rumors were out there and we're not going to feed into those at all. Uh, we'll wait and let the science uh, do what uh, the scientists do, what they do, and the engineers do what they do. And we'll figure that out as a, and report on it as it comes out. So the second part I wanted to ask you about was uh, mutual aid. And clearly this wasn't something that 
Surfside or Miami-Dade or South Florida was going to handle by itself. Um, I know just from having been there, but anecdotally, most uh, coastal areas are like this. It's a very dynamic municipal area with, um, uh, you know, boundary after boundary of city or town just kind of flows. And there's a lot of opportunity in those situations for overlap and confusion. Uh, you know, those boundaries are just imaginary lines, really, in the middle of the road that can create a management nightmare. Can you talk about how mutual aid worked in uh, from your perspective, both local to the fire and EMS scene, but most specifically to the USAR portion of the event? It's, it's all related, but can you talk to the mutual aid and uh, how they pre-planning for all of that? Uh, it sounds like it worked out, but let's hear from you. Sure. Sure. Well, again, sometimes you're 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 successful um, based on previous events. And yes, uh, South Florida is a resource rich area. Miami-Dade Fire Rescue, which is the department that was responsible for the city of Surfside, is a large fire rescue agency, one of the 10 largest in the nation. Uh, but they certainly couldn't do this alone. Right literally the next building down from this collapsed structure was in the city of Miami Beach, which is their own, has their own fire department within Miami-Dade County. And yeah. so early into the incident, you had Miami Beach responding because several 911 calls went their way, and you had Miami-Dade County uh, as well as, as, uh, as uh, the city of Miami. Uh, early on, and, and we all know this, those first arriving officers, sometimes what they do sets in motion the next few minutes, hours, and in this case, days. But that original arriving officer, you know, declared a mass casualty incident level five, which probably was a lot more than needed, but what it put into motion was a system that we had established for the Super Bowl that occurred in 20 Jan, January of, or February of 2020. And uh -huh. so we had tested this system with the neighboring counties to say, listen, if we need a lot of help, how does this work? And it went flawlessly. Uh, resources were requested from as far away as Palm Beach County, which is two counties north. Many resources from Broward County, which is the next county north as well as local resources within Miami-Dade County. That also, that one statement also put into motion the alerting of our state emergency management office, which alerted, that's how I was alerted as one of the USAR coordinators for the state of Florida within a half hour of the incident happening. And so a lot of things started working very early on. Now, specific to technical rescue, Florida Task Force One is part of the national USAR system, and it is sponsored by Miami-Dade Fire. And so many elements of Florida Task Force One were, were called back very early on. Our engineers, our canine search folks that are typically not firefighters, but civilians. We've used them in several incidents that we've had previously, and it's worked flawlessly. And they were called back early. Uh, as well as all the members of Florida Task Force One to, to put together a search and rescue team. Right next door, the city of Miami, which is their own fire department, is a sponsoring agency for Florida Task Force Two, 
also a federal team. And so through mutual aid, they were able to respond. So we were able to put two type one USAR task forces locally on this incident within the first 12 hours of the incident happening. Now in the state of Florida, after September 11th, like many states, we began to build a state USAR system. And we did it through grant funding and support of the local agencies. And what that looks like today is Florida One and Florida Two, which also are state resources, but they're also our federal resources, but they're also state. And then we have two more state teams that are type twos, two that are type threes, and two that are type uh, fours. So we have eight USAR task forces within the state of Florida that were all mobilized at the same time for this incident. They didn't come in at the same time, but they were, you know, there was a tiered response of bringing in the rescuers. So this happened in the early morning hours of a Friday morning. By Sunday, all eight teams in the state of Florida were operating on this work site. We had upwards of about 450 search and rescue personnel operating on this on this work site. Was that 450 just from Florida or in total? That's what you were working with? Just from, just from the state of Florida and just USAR people. That yeah. was not including the fire department folks that were there. Now, a lot of the mass casualty uh, resources, unfortunately, weren't needed. You know, unfortunately, there weren't a lot of transports. Most of the people that were in this building um, uh, became victims and, and weren't yeah. removed. And so uh, a lot of those resources were turned back. But before sunlight, and this happened early, about a little after one in the morning, before the sun rose, uh, there were over 80 transport rescues there on scene, all from mutual aid, uh, uh, ready to, to transport had we had yeah. those victims. Yeah. And then the response from outside the state of Florida. So did that, was that coordinated through FEMA? And, and what else, what did that bring, at least in total, what did that bring? Right. So, you know, the, as, as part of our national system, when the state of Florida is notified of an incident, their job is to notify the region, which were region four in the FEMA system, yeah. and they push that up to Washington. So I received phone calls uh, from my counterparts on the national system early that morning uh, that we're going to go ahead and alert three task forces, meaning we're going to ramp them up and say, look, if you need them, they're here. Uh, so they put the three task forces on alert um, early that morning. Um, when we started developing the strategy for search and rescue, um, you know, you can quickly overwhelm a, a site with too many people too. And we're sure. only dealing with about an acre, a little over an acre site. You saw it when you were down there. It's not huge. Yeah. yeah and, and, so, and a site that's difficult to access too. You figure you got the ocean on exactly. one side. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. on one side of the bay on another, basically it's, yep. it's not a lot of room. Right. So we, you know, we, we created a strategy uh, where, okay, we're going to utilize our Florida resources, you know, based on my experience that I've seen over the years, we weren't going to be done in a day. We weren't going to be done in a week. And so I was trying to develop with uh, the help of the, the search and rescue branch that we kind of put in place. How are we going to, you know, rotate these resources in and out? And so 
around day five of the incident, we started putting in place uh, a plan where we start rotating our Florida resources out uh, and, re and utilizing these federal resources that were already stood up. So there was a period of time where there was some overlap, but basically around day eight or nine, we transitioned out all 450 Florida resources and we had about the same number of federal resources. Uh, we had five 80-person uh, teams from FEMA as well as an incident support team that moved in to, to continue. We were still in rescue mode, continue the rescue operation. Yeah. So the um, response system that brought those in, the mutual aid uh, I'll, I'll call it mutual aid system that brought those in through FEMA. Are there any takeaways from what you learned from this? Because I, my sense is that clearly this is not normal. Um, that even when we have floods and earthquakes and um, you know various things, we don't have this breadth of alert and response within the United States. I've seen it go outside. Have we learned anything from this with respect to that mutual aid system and uh, either things that have been changed or need to change? Well, I think um, I think the big takeaways is twofold. One is that that confidence to lean forward, whether it's at the state level or the federal level, to say, look, we're going to we're going to kind of lean forward, not unlike our fire ground operations, right, where we might call additional resources that we hold in staging but we'd rather them close than far away. And so leaning forward, and the other big thing that I think local responders need to remember is the reflex time. And again, we kind of get used to the, the fire ground where we call another engine, another truck, another unit, and they're there relatively quickly. But when you're calling a resource from, in our case, Indianapolis or uh, yeah. Virginia Beach, you know, or Philadelphia, it's going to take a little bit of time. So you've sure. got to build that into your plan. What's your reflex time? The other thing we learned here in Florida, because we don't have those alert mechanisms like the federal system has, is can we build in some small amount of funding to allow our Florida teams to have that ramp up period? You know, I would have loved to have been able to call our teams early that first day and say, look, I'm putting you on alert. You know, here's X amount, maybe $10,000 to pay a few people to start getting things ready, to buy any perishables you need, to rent vehicles if you need it, because Saturday morning, I need you on the road. And right. what happened with us, and we're trying to fix it, is when I called them Saturday, we're, we still are going to experience a bit of a delay in getting, bringing in all those people and doing all that. So those are two big things that, that, that you know, we learned coming out of this incident is leaning forward and and allowing for that reflex time. Build that into your planning because it's going to sure. if you think you need a team, you better get them on the road now because if you don't, you won't see them for 2 days. So let me ask you uh, to walk back 20 years uh, because you know I said I don't recall ever seeing or, or I said this is not normal, this response is not normal. On 9/11 uh, clearly a much more catastrophic event. A, a lot of people, in fact, one of the, one of the lieutenants on the radio said, this is, this is like 9-11. Um, right. clearly not as, as, uh, large. 
but did the FEMA response from the just from the USAR team? I'm not, you know, this is no indictment on anything with FEMA. It's not the intent. But mm-hmm. you feel that we learned after 9/11, and that you saw a change by the time Surfside came around in uh, the way those FEMA mobilizations worked uh, or or the process worked, or are there still gaps there that we're working on? I think we're much better. Um, I I think that 9-11, like you said, was was somewhat different. I can tell you that I was sitting in the office of special operations that morning watching like everybody was on TV. And when that second plane hit, within – five minutes we received a call from fema that we were activated we didn't know where we were going we didn't know what was going on but you need to you need to load up and get going so there was a there was a huge push to get things rolling but again the reflex time takes a little bit of time um the bigger lesson that came out of the 0405 hurricanes specifically katrina is all of this help is dependent on the local folks saying we need help And, and sometimes areas are reluctant to say we need help until it's not too late, but later than it should be. And so I would, you know, impress upon, you know, chief officers and and local entities to, you know, work with your emergency management, work with your local officials, have those relationships so that, you know, when you say I need 400 rescuers, they realize you need 400 rescuers. And, you know, uh, remember when this started, there was no state disaster declaration. There was no federal disaster declaration. Miami-Dade County was on the hook for every penny spent on this incident. And, and so there's those considerations, uh, and you know, that's a relatively, uh, well, uh, funded County. Could you imagine in a very rural community? a mayor or a council or somebody saying, you know, am I on the hook? You know, how much is this going to cost? Yeah. So there's a certain amount of, Hey, look, you have to trust me on this. It's going to be bigger than you think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there was some of that out of uh, New York in the beginning that, uh, sure. uh, on, on nine 11, that, uh, they were, uh, I don't think it was, uh, strategically planned, but they were reluctant to call for outside help because they'd never had to ask for outside help before. And, uh, you know, ultimately, um, it, it took a little bit of time and I've talked to a lot of folks that were involved in that process, but it took a lot of time and they, they ultimately, uh, understood that this was bigger than, than them. And I think that's, um, to that point about Surfside, this was clearly bigger than what Surfside was going to be able to deal with. And there were no questions. Um, about needing the help and calling for the help. So it sounds like that was a pretty effective um, operation. So moving into the last, uh, yeah, yeah, no question. Uh, Moving into the last uh, area uh, was about relationships with tech rescue and urban search and rescue. Um, You know, we as chiefs always tell people we're doing something wrong if we don't learn from every single incident we respond to. Uh, so that's what I want to talk about here is what, what have we learned about um, uh, after the Champ- uh, Champlain Towers incident and, and how are those partnerships and relationships continuing to evolve? Because I'm sure it's not done. We're only six months in here. Um, how have they uh, begun to evolve and how 
are those uh, things that need to change uh, changing because I'm sure you all learned some things from this that um, you've said, you know what, we need to do X, Y, and Z, and you're still involved in the process. So if we can talk about that, I'd appreciate it. Sure. Well, I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. We've got to look at every event and, and, and learn, and there's lessons that can be learned from every event, this, this one included. Um, one of the big takeaways um, we've, we've, we've gotten from this event is that we need to make sure we realize whether it's fire department or police or search and rescue that incidents can become bigger than you are. In other words, you have to leverage your relationships with your partners in emergency management and the other first responders at many different levels. We would not have been successful had it not been the relationships we had with our state emergency management and and our local emergency management they played a critical role in securing a lot of the equipment and the supplies that quite frankly the rescuers were blowing through you know you're working 24 hours a day breaching and breaking and and uh, that was a tremendous help you know you're not going to be able to do that alone you know in miami-dade county again we were somewhat fortunate in the fact that contracts were already in place. You know, you need to be thinking about how am I going to get a 400 ton crane here and how long is it going to take? You know, who's going to bring it? Those contracts need to be in place ahead of time. What equipment do I need? You know, we're formulating a, a basis of equipment so that you know, we can tell folks afterwards, these are some of the minimum heavy equipment you should be considered considering on a building collapse. Um, our state emergency management um, wants to have a list of equipment that they can execute quickly contracts. It took a few days, but they brought in a contractor. And so instead of using our task force breaching and breaking equipment, we utilized a, a, a private contractor. And if something broke, we moved it to the side, they brought in another one and they fixed the broken one. And that worked out really well um, for, our, for our personnel. Um, utilizing those, you, you talked about it earlier, those federal partners, we brought in 20 plus folks from the Army Corps of Engineers to help us make decisions on the existing building and monitoring of the building and monitoring of movement. We had folks uh, that uh, were doing air sampling monitoring. We partnered with our local uh, uh, environmental folks as well as the national folks to do the air monitoring for our responders. So I guess where I'm going is you have to realize, and, and I kind of coined the phrase, you have to be able to transition from an incident to an event. This is no longer what we would call a big multi-alarm incident. This is now an event, and you're bringing in a lot of other entities to support that. Yeah. In the public information world, you were talking about the difference between a phone call from one newspaper reporter to CNN at your doorstep. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So the um transitioning from an incident to an event uh, that that is something that uh, uh is, is pretty impactful when you think about you know the everyday firefighter that's out there 
planning and, and you know, thinking, uh, thinking they've got it. We've got this. Um, and understanding that, you know what, one day you're going to roll up on something that you don't got. And, um, and being able to transition from that to this is something that every chief needs to be prepared for. And um, I hope that as the reports continue to come out of this, that that's that command and control piece of this is something that will be captured in after action reports that uh, we can share certainly with our uh, full response community. So what about with the urban search and rescue teams? Um, what are some of the things that we've learned from this event, or maybe we, we didn't learn them, but we verified them, or we just need to hone them. What, what are some of those things? Well, I think to kind of tie into your, your point you just made about the command and control is having the, the sufficient uh, personnel available to support the USAR component. You know, if you think that you're just going to establish a search and rescue group and it's going to be one chief on each shift to oversee 400 yeah. rescuers and their needs. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. And, and so being able to kind of build out that branch with, you know, and, and I, I think I sometimes refer to it as the bandwidth, even Miami Dade really didn't have the bandwidth to build that out and, and so one of the things we're looking at here in Florida is having our incident support people specific to USAR, not to come in and take over a call, not to come in and take over an event or an incident, but to provide that technical support to the authority having jurisdiction, uh, yeah. because it is unique. It, it, it is, there's unique needs and there's unique uh, uh, responsibilities. So that to me um, is, is huge. Uh, and, and something that, that folks need to realize. We, we benefited tremendously. Besides the five federal teams, we utilized the, in, the USAR incident support team, the blue team. They were red, white, and blue. The blue team that, you know, this is a 24-person cell. You think it's kind of big, but they were quickly gobbled up into this incident and uh, proved, in, you know, incredible worth in helping manage the overall incident for the local authority having jurisdiction. Yeah. Yeah. So the, you mentioned before the 12 hour uh, shifts, um, is that something that you would do again? Is that something that uh, needs to be refined or, um, what, you know, how, how did that work uh, from the perspective of what we've learned from it? How did that work out? Well, for, for South Florida, you know, we, we did a difference. Everybody's kind of used to the AM, PM, days, nights, 12-hour shifts. And because of the heat and humidity in Florida, we decided early on we're going to do a shift from midnight to noon and from noon to midnight and break up that hot and humid day uh, between yeah. the rescuers. That worked out great for the rescuers. But the, as I would call, traditionalists that were still in that night and day cycle uh, it caused a little bit of confusion, but we were able to work through that confusion. The one thing I can tell you on these Alpha and Bravo is you've got to look at your whole resources because, yes, we were, you know, let's say we had half a team working 12A to 12P and the other half working the other shift. But those other support folks, those logistics folks, those communications folks, those planners, those tech infos, 
they're working around the clock. They had no break. And so one of the things we had to look at is let's put a whole team on one shift so that that whole team takes a 12 hour break. That was a huge lesson learned. Instead of, you know, we've set up our USAR to work around the clock half and half, but you don't really have half and half. It turns out, especially the poor log folks, logistics folks, they're working around the clock, keeping everything moving. So yeah. that was a big thing we, we learned. And it worked good for the Florida teams. The federal teams kind of came in with their traditional half on, half off, and that warmed down pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. So putting the entire um, shift, if you will, on at the same time, as opposed to splitting them up to kind of thin them out, yep. you needed them all, you, you needed it pretty thick to be able to get this yep. done. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay. So we talked about some of the uh, contracts and renting of equipment. I thought that was uh, real interesting. And again, something people don't think about. They, um, uh, you know, they think about operations and yeah, you need to get a crane in. But thinking about the maintenance and uh, the air monitoring, of course, uh, going on with that. Uh, what about the resupply for everything that goes on with this? I'm not just talking about for maintenance, but everything from the camps, uh, the food, the sleeping. Can you talk about uh, those things and lessons learned out of that? Absolutely. I mean, the those the perishable resupply <clears throat> was one of the major challenges. Um, and, and so again, working with our state logistics, uh, proved incredibly valuable because they could bring in those large quantities and some of the PPE, you know, if there's anything good that's come out of the COVID, you know, response that we've had over the last uh, year is that we had stockpiles of PPE that we could utilize on the, on the scene. But feeding all these folks and trying to, to bed these folks down was, was a bit of a challenge as well. Again, the USAR teams are set up with their own internal self-sustainment. And that's great. But when you have five of them, they take up a huge footprint and a lot of duplication. Do we actually need five logistics stockpiles and, and all these individual tents? And so one of the lessons is we should look at, you know, more of a base camp concept that we see in the wildfire arena where everybody kind of feeds into the base camp. Um, you know, we utilized on this and it just, it didn't work out early on, but into the incident when the federal teams came, we were able to actually put them on a cruise ship. Um, and, and that worked out great because the ship was in the port. It was kind of like having a floating hotel you know, where are you going to find somewhere in Miami uh, this time of year? There's not 400 hotel rooms hanging out anywhere. Yeah. And so this worked out great. Uh, it was a bit of a transportation issue getting them to the scene every every work cycle. But that worked out great for us. But, you know, having them set up in a base camp where we had them in a park and with the rain and the heat and the humidity, um, you know, it, it, it wore, he, you know, heavily on the rescuers, you know, over a period of time. So having those contracts in place, looking at, okay, who can help come in early on and establish a base camp for us so that all the rescuers can kind of be housed in the same area uh, yeah. would, would be beneficial. And again, you saw the size of the area, small roads, you know, tiny areas that we had to fit everything that was, you know, surrounding this incident. 
Yeah. And you touched on it here a bit, and this is the last uh, piece I'd like to touch. And, um, you know, while I was there, uh, I, I forget what day, frankly, I went, but I, I believe we were about a weekend. And the um, when the winds would shift, the overwhelming stench of death uh, was um, was pretty phenomenal. And you touched on uh, some of the other pieces of this, but can we talk about the uh, mental wellness support and what we might have learned uh, for uh, for the folks out of this incident on you know mental health and wellness support for these incidents? Absolutely. And, and this was a huge success and a lot of lessons learned that came out of this. First of all, in my you know, 20 plus years of search and rescue experience, I've never seen mental wellness addressed early in an incident. It's always at the end or once you get home. And I, I applaud our, our, our CFO uh, here in the state of Florida that, that technically is the state fire marshal um, yeah. and our director of the state fire marshal's office that early in the incident, they've ramped up our peer support. We're fortunate here in Florida to have a health and safety collaborative that's a joint effort between the, the professional firefighters and the fire chiefs association. And within that is a mental wellness component. And so these are firefighters. These are, are trained people uh, that know what we do. And we early on brought these mental uh, health support folks as well as others into the incident. That was That worked out great. That's the good news. The bad news is that um, you've got you've to uh, package that in a way that makes sense. These folks were just kind of coming into the area. They were ha- having a hard time interacting with the teams. We're actually looking at kind of tying some of our mental wellness folks to each of our search and rescue teams so that they can at least be supportive, uh, 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 supported, not supportive for the team because these folks came, we had no housing for them. We had very little of a, of an area for them to set up. And, um, they did a phenomenal job, uh, making the best out of the situation, but we could do much better in supporting the people themselves for the incident. The other piece, and I don't know how to fix this. Uh, I guess it's a sign of the times, but I think back to the World Trade Center, and when I was working there, um, you had every person, every celebrity, anybody coming in, wanting to bring food, water, whatever. That was the way in. Fast forward to Surfside, the way in is to tell them you're a mental health professional. Yeah. So we had everything. I kind of joked. The only thing we didn't have was a van full of clowns that showed up saying clowning for mental wellness. We had so many people that said they were for this and they were for that. And how do you control that? You know, you have people walking around that you don't know what their function is or how they're, and we've got to get a better handle on that. You know, the credentialing and, and that type of thing. Um, It didn't impact our situation. They didn't get into the task forces, but they were into the incident where they didn't need to be. And, uh, but uh, you know, to your question, Early mental wellness uh, uh, integration was critical because you experienced it firsthand down there. These folks are coming off the pile. 
They're not going back to a hot tub, hot shower. They're going back to a muddy, you know, a park with their tent. Hopefully there's a little bit of an air conditioning in that. Uh, and everything smells like what you smell out on that pile. Yeah. And getting all that gear laundered and clean, but having somebody there to talk to them uh, was critically important. So uh, these mental wellness folks circulated amongst the task forces. And the other neat thing, and I'll, I hate to run on here, but the other neat thing is we're getting all these supplies in. And, um, and, and they, they kind of set up a store. And so if somebody said, hey, is there anywhere to get shampoo or toothpaste or whatever, powder for my boots? They had this store set up and, and everybody on the incident knew to go by there. We didn't, that wasn't the important thing. The important thing was that that's where these responders would let their guard down. They would talk to these folks off to the side. Yeah, you know, because they they were it was all staffed by our mental wellness folks, mm. and they had the opportunity. These folks weren't in their engaged routine, you know. They're just trying to get some toothpaste, and sure. they say, "Hey, how you doing?" Well, you know, man, I haven't been sleeping. I haven't come over here for a second. You know, talk to me for a minute. Let's let's talk about that. Yeah, it, it offered us an opportunity to interact where you're not going to see that traditionally. Yeah. Phenomenal stuff. We've been talking with Chief Dave Downey on the urban search and rescue effort and lessons learned for Surfside. Uh, Chief, do you have anything else to add? No, listen, I, I want to thank you for the opportunity here. Uh, and, uh, you know, once again, I just can't tell you how proud I am of my department. I still consider it my department, uh, my state always, always and, our, will. and the federal response. Yep. Yeah. Always will be your department. Just remember that. I mean, that's uh, the ownership yeah. we have as chiefs. Um, I appreciate that. And um, I appreciate you being with us. I want to capture some takeaways for our listeners. And um, of course, the whole recording will be here. There'll be several things in the show notes some pictures, links to different things. I'd also like to include uh, a link to the Florida uh, Firefighter uh, Safety and Health Collaborative uh, in the show notes so that we can um, share that resource with other folks. We talked about, uh, and, and this was a phrase that Chief Downey uh, coined here, he said, we talked about that if one thing was confirmed, it was that nothing is ever the same and how this incident bore, uh, bared uh, that out. Uh, then uh, we talked about managing uh, the religious beliefs with respect to victim removal and how that impacted the operation and uh, how the Israeli USAR team came in with experience, knowledge. They didn't come with any equipment, but they came with experience, knowledge, uh, and ties to the community and created a comfort for the community that the local fire department was not going to be able to provide. Uh, so bringing them in and the value that that created. Um, they also brought an accountability process for family and victim uh, identification that was, uh, according to Chief Downey, was unprecedented in the management of the recovery of those victims. And then we went on to talk about mutual aid uh, pre-planning and uh, how having a plan originally developed for the Super Bowl helped mold this response. Uh, and that was an interesting uh, discussion. Uh, and then we talked about the integration of type one through four USAR teams, eight teams that are across the state of Florida uh, that brought 450 USAR responders just from Florida. Uh, and how that then tied in with the FEMA response that alerted uh, three task force, put three task force on alert, but brought in uh, credentialed responders from all over the United States, another 400 that were brought in, and then those that all worked into uh, the relief patterns. Uh, we talked about parallels 
of other incidents and 9-11 and uh, some hurricanes and uh, what had been learned not only from those but in this and the USAR responses and how to make improvements there. Uh, and then we talked about transitioning the, uh, the, the mindset of having to transition from an incident to an event, uh, how to transition from the everyday to uh, the multiple day event and how leveraging partnerships across the emergency response paradigm was priceless for this particular event. Uh, having contracts and contacts in place to manage the multi-week, 24-hour-a-day scene from planning and operations to maintenance and air monitoring. Think about um, that crane or that fire truck or whatever it was that was operating and having it break in the middle of that operation that's running 24 hours a day. You've got to do something to uh, fix that, and they had a plan in place for that. Uh, and then we talked about building out the branches of the incident command system to support future large-scale events and how it was a little different in this uh, from uh, some of the other uh, incidents and then how they'll continue to learn from that. Uh, we talked about the operational periods that uh, accounted for Florida heat uh, and humidity, and instead of it being a traditional maybe 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. type of thing uh, that would capture the entire day of heat, uh, they broke it up to uh, 12 to 12, so uh, noon to midnight, and uh, that broke up the heat for uh, the people having to operate. Uh, and how they operated with whole teams instead of thinning the uh, some of the sections uh, like logistics and finance and instead of thinning those out, bringing the whole team together and they all functioned with operations as part of that 12-hour team and how that worked well at the state level uh, and how maybe that's a lesson learned at the federal level. Uh, and then we talked about perishables management and logistics and uh, looking at the base camp concepts that uh, are seen in wildfire scenarios that uh, are not typically used in uh, in this type of incident, but certainly uh, something they continue to look at. And then finally, we talked about the uh, mental wellness support successes and lessons learned. And uh, specifically, uh, one of the things that was uh, learned out of this, because as Chief Downey noted, most of the mental wellness or mental support, mental health support programs are typically after the fact. Uh, there are some that I've seen come to a scene, but not to this depth and breadth. Uh, but if that's going to continue, which I think it was a phenomenal effort to bring them in uh, early on from the state of Florida's perspective, to bring that um, mental wellness support teams in, that they need a better deployment plan uh, for those um, health and wellness folks to be able to fit into uh, not only the incident command system, but be able to fit into the physically fit into the scene. Well, folks, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank uh, Chief Dave Downey for taking time to join us, and I want to thank our listeners for hanging in there with us. Um, this is Mark Basher, Executive Editor for FireRescueOne.com and FireChief.com. Have a great day on purpose. Keep safe, stay smart, and take care. <laughs>